Okay. Well, I have some very juicy responses to last week's episode. I'm very excited to get into those. I'm going to do a mailbag episode next Tuesday, I reckon, just to go through all that because I've been so surprised uh, at who's listening and so happy that people are taking the time to think through what I was talking about last week and yeah, give me their takes on it. I'm really excited to talk more about that. And so I said last week, talking about Ben Etherington's article, The Poet Tasters, that I was going to address this section in the article where Ben talks about a piece written in Southerly back around 2012, 2013, called Obscurity in Poetry, a Spectrum. And how, and Ben in his article talks about how that kicked off a whole bunch of online fuss and eventually a section of that article was redacted. Um, And Ben found that all incredibly funny and summarized the whole thing in his piece by saying, ah, conflict, turn it off, which I thought was quite funny. Um, So I said I was going to address that this week and I'm just going to be totally upfront with you about how this unfolded. So about a year ago, pretty much exactly a year ago, I went to Canberra. I interviewed Paul Kane. I interviewed the people who were in my episode, which I called The Collapsing Building, which was about the poetry scene in Canberra that I was completely unaware of at the time that I lived there. And I also interviewed Jeff Page. I didn't tell you that at the time, because what happened was Jeff said after we chatted, oh, it'd be great to listen back to that uh, before you put it out. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's totally cool. Sent him through the MP3, didn't hear anything and didn't press it. I just thought, I knew he was traveling and I just didn't want to be a bother, I suppose. And I just didn't press him on getting back to me. It's now a year later and I finally just sent the follow-up email and he said, oh yeah, no, that, that's, I listened to it. It, it sounds okay. Um, and, and I believe that I'm now cool to put this out. I'm, I'm hoping I'm right on that. Um, and, but listening back to it. And so in my mind, in my mind, We talked quite a lot at the end of this conversation about the article Obscurity in Poetry and about reviewing and about um, Jeff's uh, critical lens, um, the way that he, he sees reviewing as a job and all that kind of stuff. And we do. We do talk about all that. But I think I'm understanding now why I sat on this for so long. Because as I'm listening back to this, I'm thinking... Like, I think I'm uncomfortable with the way that I am in this interview because basically there are moments where I feel that I should have pushed and asked a second question um, and maybe even disagreed to whatever degree that's reasonable when you're interviewing someone in their home. Um, And I didn't. And I, I don't love that. Uh, I don't, I don't like listening back to my side of this conversation. Um, 
because there are points where I really disagree with Jeff and I don't know why I didn't just say so in the moment. I think it'll become clear uh, as you listen through. It's mostly towards the end when we talk about the actual article itself and then we talk more about like this idea of good and bad. Um, and yeah, basically talk about like the the role of identity in poetry. Um and there are just parts there where I just have a very different view to Jeff. But the other part of listening back to this was I, I was struck by his, like, I think he understands how what he says is going to land. Um, and so, yeah, even, even though I think that, oh God, this is a lot of, this is a lot of throat clearing. I'll, I'll move on in a second. Even though I think that there's a lot of like stuff there that people would strongly disagree with, I think Jeff doesn't have this stance that like, I am right and you should agree with me. He's basically saying, this is my perspective. I'm sure people will disagree with me. But so it's important to note though, like who is Jeff Page in Australian poetry? If you're in Canberra, Jeff Page is the person who runs a monthly poetry reading, currently at Smith's, not a bookshop. He is, he's a poet. He's published many, many books. At the time that we did this interview, he had just published 101 Poems, 2011 to 2021. Since we did this, he's put out another collection with Pitt Street called Penultima. So you may, you may know him through his poetry, but probably, most likely, you would know him through his reviews. He writes for ABR, for Sydney Review of Books. Uh, I, he used to write a lot for the Canberra Times. I don't know if he still does that at the moment. But he's one of the more prolific reviewers in Australia. And so I think, hopefully, the value of this conversation is getting to hear, like, getting to hear where Jeff Page the reviewer is coming from because he does have a very particular perspective. I don't think it's an overstatement to say it's a relatively conservative perspective. And I was thinking about putting this out and I was wondering like, have I become more conservative, like from the person who first started studying poetry and like studying Stein and Armentrout and, um, you know, really getting really deeply into Ashbury and all this kind of stuff. And like, I feel, I feel personally like less patient in some ways with that sort of writing, but in a way I'm like, I think it's just cause I'm really tired. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think, um, if I had more time and energy, like I remember how satisfying that work was to read and to read in, in um, in a group with others and to like explode the meanings of all these sentences I remember that being so deeply satisfying and I miss that in a lot of ways and I, I do sort of feel like my desire for a poem to just not beat around the bush and like get directly at its point and not confuse me ever is um, a kind of conservatism but also a kind of like a result of <laughs> like exhaustion on my part. Um, and I don't think that's the fault of 
poems. So anyway, what this interview is, is mostly a look at Jeff and his work um, with a little bit of a conversation at the end about obscurity in poetry, a spectrum, the article that he wrote for Southerly, and some discussion about his critical stance. And so I hope that hearing from him is valuable and interesting in the context of the last episode. The other thing that I want to mention, though, and maybe this explains my um, reticence when it came to pushing back in the moment, is that to me personally, Jeff Page is Jeff my high school teacher. Jeff used to teach at Narrabunda, which we refer to in this interview as Bunda. Uh, Bunda was a school that had a single rule, no bare feet. And uh, yeah, you're allowed to smoke and call your teachers by their first names. Uh, There was a a legendary day when one of the students did a nudie run and it sort of went unremarked. It It was a very free and easy place. And uh, yeah, Jeff was the guy who did the poetry class. I never actually took the poetry class. As I say in the interview, I think I was a little bit nervous to do so. So very long-winded throat-clearing intro here from me. I do hope you get something out of this lost interview. And I very much look forward to reading and digging into your responses to my last episode next week. Yeah, so I mean, I never, I never took your class at Bunda, but no, I just don't, I don't, but I don't remember what is in my class. Right? Yeah, you weren't yeah. actually in my class, no, no. No, I think I was a little bit nervous to actually take the poetry class. Oh, like, really? It would be like... Well, you're writing already at that stage. No, I, I wasn't really. I think I was in a bit of denial. That Did you do a bit of... Po- What's the question I'm asking? Uh, did you do creative writing? In, yes. With, with, who, was, who was it with? Alex Femister. Alex Femister. Did you know he died just recently? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. It's a few weeks ago, actually. Seriously? Went to his funeral, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Were you still in touch with him? Not really, no. We sort of lost touch a bit. Yeah. Oh, wow. I've got a poem, actually, they read at the funeral, mm. which was basically an anecdote about Alex and his ideas, about one of his philosophical ideas, and so on, his explanation of it. Uh, I could show you that later. It's, a, it's called Magpie and Philosopher. It's in a 2001 book called... Uh, Darker and Lighter. I don't know if you've ever seen that. But I'm not sure if it's in there, and it probably isn't in there. So, Have you got a copy of that, Hidden Eyes? I, mean, that's a, I, don't, I don't have If that you one. have these two books, you basically got the collected page. Right. Uh, what, not the collected, but what I want to leave behind. I'm not ever going to do a collected. I'm happy to let some of it drift away. And right. Just have the best. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, oh, thank you for telling me about that, about Alex. Um so yeah, I didn't take your class at Bunda. I, I was wondering how long it's been since you retired. Uh, quite a while. You know, I retired on an early sort of later. I was only 61 when I retired. Mm-hmm. Now I'm 82, so I had a good 21 years retirement and been pretty active and had a great time really. And you get a steady income and it's a bit of a dream. It's like being an 18th century gentleman, you know. <laughs> Without any peasants to torment. <laughs> so you don't miss teaching? Uh, 
I probably did initially, but actually I've got one student now, an adult student that I'm teaching poetry that we meet virtually every week, you know, and I've been doing that for three years. But uh, the only thing I miss is there's, well, the kids, the feedback from the kids, you know, which is at that age, they're pretty striking, you know, everything's fresh and, and uh, they are really interested, nearly all of them, you know. Uh, but I, I suppose I do miss that in a way, but I'm, I'm too busy to miss things. I'll just get on with what I... I'm a bit of a stick in the mud uh, in the sense that I did do a lot of travelling, but now I'm a bit over the travelling, but my partner Gwen is not quite over it, so I'm going to be dragged around a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think makes a good poetry teacher? Well... It's hard to say. You're, you're, you're tempted to say, well, the poetry teacher should be a practitioner, probably at least a dabbler, uh, should have some experience of, of writing or trying to write. But I can imagine good poetry teachers who've never written a word. I don't think that's essential. I, th I think the main thing is to let the students come to the poems themselves. You know, you put the poems in their way and then they kind of fall over them and then you start talking about them. And I always made a point of putting a number of poems out there and then getting each group in the class to select a poem from this group and then talk about it to the rest of the group. You know, so they had a, a sense of ownership. This is, a, this is our poem, you know, and uh, got to present and read it well. And the readings, I know, though it's hard to put them in order. Reading aloud is very important. You know, I'd, I'd insist on... Uh, completely competent reading and you know, so if they didn't get it right the first time I'd read it again you know and sort of a, or get somebody else to read it and so on and that sort of thing and sometimes we'd go around to class uh, just reading I might have say 20 poems by William Carlos Williams and just say we're not going to talk about these just going to read them for fun you know just go around you pick one to read and uh, that would be the lesson you know sort of uh, so that that sort of encourages the love of it you know this is for the fun, you know, the, it's it's satisfying to actually read a poem aloud. I don't think everybody fully understands that. It was for anybody, you know. It's a we used to have a thing called the Dead Poets Dinner, uh, where we read poems only by the dead, as it were. And uh, <laughs> uh, it had a lot of people who weren't poets who read extremely well. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you remember if there was a poem that a particular poem that when you would bring it to the class, it would get a strong reaction, like a negative or a positive reaction? Uh, yeah, I wrote a poem about such a poem, actually, uh, called to my brother Miguel, oh, by yes, Cesar yeah. Viejo. Yep. And uh, that always got a big, you know, people found that very sad, very, very sad. Mm. Mm. So I've written this poem, it's actually about, I don't know if it's in that book or not. Yeah, yeah it's, in, it's in the 101, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there was a lot, quite a few other ones. Uh, mostly they responded pretty well to E. Cummings and, and Williams and Steve and some extent. Yeah, quite a lot, you know. And uh, Australians like Bruce Dorr and others, yeah. Judith Wright. Um, and do you hear from students? Oh, a bit, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, actually, one of my ex students is reading in my series X month. And, I don't know if he's in your generation. He might be a bit older. You know, Matt Hetherington. Oh, yeah, I know Matt. You, yeah. know, you wouldn't know Matt from Melbourne. It's yes. Bit, ubiquitous yeah. down there, but he lives up in the North Coast. And, uh, he's going to read in my series next month, actually. Oh, yeah. great. 
Well, I, I went to Smith's yesterday to interview Paul Kane, who read on this week. Yeah. And I have to say, I was amazed at how that place has transformed. When I knew it was a bookshop. Yeah, right. Yes. Now, now yeah. it's a venue. Yeah, it's a venue. And you have run a series there. I, I run a series there. Uh, well, it's a series that goes right back to 1994 and it's been in a whole lot of cafes and so on, but uh, I've been there about two and a half years, something like that. And I, I they run a, poem, a poetry session every Monday and I've got the first Monday of each month from February to December. Oh, so you share it with other reading series? Yeah, well, yeah, there's one other series. Mm-hmm. They're on three days, three days a month. I'm on one day of the month. Right. And they have a slightly different approach and slightly different sorts of poet and they're more friendly to open mic and new trends and uh, performance poetry and dot, dot, dot. You know, they're sort of a more progressive, but not in a sort of a, an arrogant or a sad way. You know, they're, they're just a, they're probably a bit younger and <laughs> a bit more democratic in temperament. Is your approach anti-democratic? No, my, my, my approach is a bit anti-democratic. Like I sort of try to insist on a level of talent before I put people on. You know, I don't like the open mic where anybody can have a go. You know, I think that there is a role for that, but I don't want to facilitate it. You know. And how do you assess the talent of the readers? Uh, well, mainly through their publications. You know, I do a lot of reviewing and... I do buy other books as well, you know, and I, if anybody new appears, I try to sort of decide whether they would be good to put on my series or not, you know. And then, mm-hmm. You can't always get everybody. I can't pay a huge amount of paying people from out of town 300 all up, no matter how much it costs to get here. And like just local people, $80 for, it's only uh, 25 to 35 minutes, you know, sort of. So it's not, I mean, it's not bad as an hourly rate, but it's not economic to travel here. You've got to have another reason as well, like a touristical reason or a workshop or just to visit the capital or something like that. Mm. But it worked well enough. And I, I, I used to get significant government money at one point, but that's become harder to get. The policy's changed. And if you keep doing essentially the same thing every year, they don't really want to hear from you. They want innovations, you know, people reciting, standing on the head with, one leg and all that. <laughs> was this from the ACT government? or Yeah, ACT yeah. government. I really never tried the federal government. I, mean, I had some support personally earlier on with literature board grants and so on. I'm not, I'm not complaining about them. But mm. uh, I've never applied for money from them. I, I don't know if they actually have that as part of their policy or mm. remit, you know. I did, I did apply to Ozco once for the reading series I was running in Melbourne and I, I didn't get through, but that doesn't really mean anything. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, since 1994, you've yeah. been running. That's right. I mean, I, occasionally I've been travelling and I've got somebody else to step in, but essentially I've organised monthly readings since 1994 in Canberra. Yeah, so. Have and now you, I'm 82. Yeah. I mean... The question I want to ask is why? Like, what? where does that commitment come from? Well, I really like good poems, you know, and uh, good poems come from a range of places. Uh, nobody writes good poetry all the time, you know, but uh, 
when you get a selection of poems that are really moving and really smart, you know, and really just good, you know, we can talk about that later, mm. then I get quite excited. The only other thing I like as much is jazz, and, and uh, I have a similar attitude to jazz, but I'm not, I don't practice at the same level by any means, you know, I'm an amateur musician and I try to be a professional poet. Mm. There is a very beautiful xylophone. Uh, uh, vibraphone, yeah. Vibraphone it's sort of, well, actually, it's a bit of an old student model, but it's, uh, it serves a purpose. And there's a lot it's just of three octaves from C to C. And yeah. Do you know about them at all? Or no, just, uh, no, well, I it's don't. set out like a piano, but you play it with mallets. You know. It's beautiful looking I'll, thing. I'll play a little bit later. But... That'd be great. Yeah, we'll get some intro-outro music from you. Um, well, I mean, you did, you did mention this... Uh, word that is a little bit of a third rail sometimes in poetry good yeah yeah let's go there let's 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 dive into that i mean you are a prolific and consistent reviewer as well as everything else yeah and um i i really want to hear from you about that because that just like running a poetry event i feel like there are elements of that which are quite thankless you're not necessarily going to win a popularity yeah. contest for being no, a reviewer. No, 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 that's right. Um, what's your approach? Uh, my approach is fairly benign, to be honest. Anyway, these days I don't review books that I have no time for. I don't sort of have this undergraduate desire to tear people I disagree with down. You know, unless once or twice anthologies that I found you know profoundly disappointing, I have got stuck into it suffered the penalty of people sort of threatening the editor and that sort of thing, but it doesn't happen very often. Normally, I just, uh, I have this theory that every book of any substance, including my own, have roughly five really good poems and about 10 or 15 pretty damn good ones and uh, probably about five sort of squibs that uh, are just there to fill up the space, you know, so... So when I get the book, I read the whole book straight through, usually in the order, sometimes backwards and so on. But, uh, and then I just I turn down what I think are the poems that I'd like to talk about in the review. You know? And usually it's about 10 of those and I just select what seemed like the best two or three and I talk about them and imply that the other poems are probably nearly as good as these. You know? And then so I'm always looking for the good, you know, and then occasionally have a little rap on the wrist, you know, at the end saying, you know, some readers may feel, and then that's sort of some some minor defect that you you find in some of the poems that you you mention, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just so you don't seem to be kind of Dr. Pangloss. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pangloss. So do you have a set criteria for what you define as good? Uh, no, no, I'm always open to extending my definition, but I can tell you what characterises most of the poems I consider good. You know? That would be good. That would yeah, be great. Okay. Hmm. Well, first of all, uh, I think they need to be either moving or, or clever or entertaining, or possibly both. You know, that uh, has to be substantial. But that you can, I, I really appreciate the poetry of, of Swift, for instance, and, and Pope and so on. I think there's a, a role for humorous form or poetry that's clever, you know, that's just as good as anything else. Comedy is hard to write, you know, quite, quite, 
quite happy to attempt that myself as well. Uh, but the poems that stick in the mind are probably those that are maybe like for my brother Miguel, you know, where there's something really sort of heart-wrenching, that something that grabs you by the throat, you know, reach for the jugular kind of thing. And uh, they're the poems that I consider good, and they're usually well-crafted as well. They're not, uh, they're not just relying on the intensity of the original emotion. They're actually recreating that emotion in vocabulary and syntax. So that's uh, sufficient under the purpose, you know. That's so, and I think the good, the good can come from anywhere, you know. There's a, it's a bit unfortunate these days that people are looking for the good and mistaking the, uh, the sociological for the good, you know, because they're hearing from a social group that they haven't heard from much before and that has a level of interest obviously it's a bit of a relief from monotony of the previous domination you know but uh there's no guarantee that the poems from this group whatever it is and i could name half a dozen will automatically be good because of the sociology of it you know and so i'm always looking for kind of quality expertise that sort of thing as well as some solid point Right. And what about the bad? Well, bad, I mean, you expect the bad. That's the same in jazz, you know, uh, any any art form. The bad probably vastly outnumbers the good, I think. Uh, poetry suffers a bit more than some other because it, it's not so very difficult to write a bad poem, you know, especially if you don't have to conform to any metrical regularities and so on. So the bad, I mean, the bad, there's a lot of different sorts of bad, but I think that might be a bit too negative to go there. But Fair. what I try yeah. to do is I avoid the bad. and Sometimes you have to flip through the bad to find the good, you know, so you have to... Uh, like I, I never not read the whole book I'm reviewing. I read the whole book, you know, mainly once carefully and then some of it the second time. Some people are more conscious, they read it three or four times, so... Because you're writing often only three or four hundred words on any one book, uh, you really, it's inevitably a little bit superficial. You're really just saying, this book has got these really good features. If you like this sort of poetry, quote some antecedents, you know, then you probably like this. You know? mm, mm. It's just basically encouraging uh, the consumption of poetry. Mm. I might actually get you to read that poem that we've referenced a couple of times. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Have you got the page number there? I didn't have this one marked, but I think uh. I can find it. César Viejo, 1892-1938. The sadness in a single poem has kept me half awake all night. César Viejo's To My Brother Miguel in memoriam. For many years I offered it to college students via translations, rickety but adequate, and every time it left them silent, shocked amid their efflorescence. Two little boys play hide and seek up and down the house, says Avallejo and his brother, their mama calling out to quiet them. At times they make each other cry by hiding irretrievably in those, all those corridors and shadows. Then one night not far from dawn, Miguel hides away forever. Your other heart of those dead afternoons is tired of asking and not finding you. 
Perhaps it was the hugeness of the poet's understatement that struck my students mute. Oye, hermano, notares en salir. Bueno, puede encatarses mamá. Twenty, thirty, forty years ago it was, or more, and still, I'm sure, each day they carry, almost as a talisman, César Viejo's sadness with them. Thank you. That's a bit better. Thank you, thank you. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the metrical form that you use? Because it yeah. seems fairly consistent across a lot uh, <laughs> of the poems. And I'm just really interested in how you came to it and how you describe okay. it. Yeah, that's a good topic. You might have trouble shutting me up. Uh, <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, when I started, I was very much under the influence of William Carlos Williams, I think. And uh, he's uh, the greatest free verse writer, along with Whitman in a different way. Mm. Uh, it's very hard to write free verse better than Williams. It's very hard to write as well as Williams at, at his best. And so I thought I started off in free verse, but then I started moving towards the iambic quite early, but I didn't, uh, it was still more flexible. And I had quite a few sort of triple rhythms floating around, extra unstressed syllables and so on, which in some poems, like uh, My Mother's God, they work perfectly well. I, I wouldn't mind half getting back to that. You know, but now I gradually moved over into iambic. So just as I'm working, I find the iambic meter very natural and uh, and very sort of, well, easy in a way too. You know, you've got to be careful it doesn't become too facile. Uh, and I, I try to get variation by varying the line length, I, typically I have three three stresses or four stresses, so that has an echo of the ballad, the 4-3 of the ballad. But it's not consistent, you know, sometimes there's three, there might be four, three four-stress lines and then a one-stress, then a three-stress, but I, I never, these days I tend not to have two-stress lines or five-stress lines, it's just either three or four. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Unless it's written in deliberately formal way with rhyme and everything, you know, and that. Even that tends to be, tends to be uh, tetrameters rather, rather than pentameters. Uh, so I try to get the variation partly just by feeling with the end of the line, you can often have an extra unstressed syllable at the end of the line. And, or it might be a stressed syllable and you start the next line. So you can have a, have a trochaic line, strong, weak, instead of iambic, weak, strong. And so that's a variation. In effect, you've got a kind of a, quasi-spondy, but of course you've got a stress at the end of one line and then you've got a little pause and then you've got a stress at the beginning of the next line. So that's almost like two stresses, which is a big feature of free verse, you know, that they, they put two stresses together. But you're going to regret. No, 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 no. It's uh, fine. James McCauley. I'm, I'm following you. <laughs> James McCauley said there's no such thing as a spondy in English. Oh, that was Macaulay. Macaulay said that, Because yeah. I think my teacher said that too and I was like, what? Oh no, I've just learned about this thing that doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> well, but the way he, what he means by that is in a green thought in a green shade, the, the green is in one foot and the thought is in the other foot. You know? mm -hmm. So the, the, it's not really, uh, a spondy is two stresses in the same foot. And uh, in Macaulay's Primer of English Versification, mm. which I read thoroughly at one point, uh, he says basically there's one stress syllable in every foot in English, you know, and of course it is stress. It's not quantitative. It's totally 
not totally different, but significantly different from Latin and Greek, you know, and some other languages which are quantitative rather than accentual. Mm. Yeah. Yep. So I just find that I like the sound of it, you know, and I know it's a risk of becoming a little sing-songy at times, you know, so you have to be careful. You remember too that the, and this is in the Shakespeare as well, you know, if you have a line of pentameter, there's always one of those five stresses which is significantly below the stress level mm. of the other four. Mm. And the same things have maybe less extent in trimmers and tetrameters as well. So it might look regular. It might look more regular than it actually is, if you like. You know, those some of these uh, stresses could come down even on a, an article like V or A, possibly occasionally, you know. Mm-hmm. And still you sort of get away with it, it feels all right. Yeah. Mm. Where do you think that pattern came from for you? Because when I, when I read your work sometimes I do hear the echo of the bush ballad oh yeah well that's true well that's partly the ballad you know Mm. the uh, bush ballads tended to be quite a lot of them in what they call 14ers you know where you have seven stresses and seven non-stresses you know and then it goes a a a b b c c like that Uh, I mean I, I like Banjo Patterson a lot when I was 13 or 14 and I read poems to the kids with great pleasure, Patterson. He's, he hardly ever makes a mistake metrically, unlike many of his followers, you know, who masters the doggerel. But, uh, he, he's always perfect mm. metrically. Mm. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about in terms of your own work is theme and subject matter. And it seems that you are really comfortable in, um, is it, there's a poem at, at the start or towards the beginning of the 101 called Complaint, which I really like. Oh, yeah. yeah which yeah. Um, has these wonderful lines about, and I'm not, I'm not really sure what perspective you're writing from, so forgive me if this is a total misinterpretation. What page is it on? Uh, page 26. 26. Um, I might get you to read the whole thing, but yeah, it, it has yeah. these lines, why this dryness of the Bible, the frailty of its gathered leaves, shorn of superstition. Yeah. So I suppose what I'm coming around to is this sense of your work as being quite comfortable um, with clarity, simplicity and, and the domestic, like the yeah. small scale subject. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Although well, some of the things I've been interested in are major moral issues like World War One and the Aboriginal situation. Of course, sort of thing. yeah, yeah. yeah. But you're you're right. I mean, I do, I, I do. I'm drawn towards plain speaking and plain vocabulary, and you know, like Frost and and Williams and so forth. Uh, mm. I don't know. I mean, but I do like poems. You know, at my contemporaries with a lot of metaphorical imagery, like Sarah Holland Batten. So you know, there's uh, what what suits you. I mean, try to have a broader taste in my own work. You know. Mm, mm. Mm. Would you mind reading Yeah, I read this because uh, it is, uh, it, you're right to be a bit confused about interpreting it because it's a bit oblique in a sense like uh, I talk about myself from an outside point of view, more or less, you know. Why, it's called complaint. Why aren't his poems filled with dreams and fish from the abyss? Slow, mysterious and thoughtful. Where are the metamorphoses, the scales that slither into feathers? And what about the surfaces, the gritty lower east side sunlight or duco from the 50s? 
Where's the moon in all its grand and mandatory phases? The farmer's face above a hedge, the freshness of its crescent, the quartered lemon or the halves moving through their wax and wane. Why not the heartbeat of the waves so variously pounding? Why this dryness of the Bible, the frailty of the gathered leaves shorn of superstition? Why the maxims left by rain, the granite boulders hiding slowly, fading slowly, the backbone stiff with self-respect? Why the clear panoptic eye, that 18th century desire to see things as they really are without the glaze of heaven? Uh, so I'm trying to more I say there, I think, why aren't I writing like lots of other people in different ways, like like the New Yorker, Jean Frank O'Hara, or why am I not writing like Pablo Neruda and so on, you know, mm, mm. people that I do admire, but are just not drawn. And then this, uh, halfway through, as you picked up at that line, uh, why this dryness of the Bible? So I, I think of myself as a secular Protestant, basically, and uh, tend to, if I have virtues, they tend to be the Protestant virtues, you know, rather than the Catholic virtues. Mm, mm. I was looking at this yesterday with my dad and we both liked the third line, slow, mysterious and thoughtful. Ah, yeah. Thinking right. of fish as slow, mysterious and thoughtful is just very lovely. Yeah. Um, do you have an answer to the questions here? Uh, I think it's partly one's upbringing. Uh, it's very hard to escape one's youth. You know, my mother was pretty straight up and down, under very tough-minded, but underneath that uh quite emotional especially as she got older you know she would occasionally cry but earlier on she was just really tough you know and uh so I, and then i went to a boarding school where you have to be tough to survive you know or hide any weakness and i've always well i haven't always but since i was about 18 or 19 i've been interested in religion from an agnostic point of view rather than atheist point of view or a faith point of view uh, so I find that area of sort of secular Protestant dryness has a, a significant attraction, but I recognise that it's also limited. But the paradox is that often there are quite fierce emotions under the surface of this dryness and this minimality and so forth, you know. So, mm. uh, you know, like a line of Williams, 35 years I lived with my husband. That sounds really flat, you know. But in the context of poem, it's very affecting, you know. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. No, so. I, I really, I really deeply share your admiration for Williams. Um, I think he's had a big effect on me too. So, since we've been talking about clarity, I also want to talk about its opposite. Yeah. Difficulty. Yeah, yeah. And I want to ask you about an article that you wrote a number of years ago that had a really big impact on me which was a piece that you put together for Southerly on yeah. obscurity. It's a bit notorious, yeah. <laughs> Are you, so you're aware of its impact? Uh, yeah, because yeah. we got all this negative feedback. People were trying to crucify me online. Uh, that's the first, almost the last time that happened. To, so it's quite interesting to... And some people that I thought would have a different attitude sort of came out of the woodwork and said something a bit negative. And other people just hid behind anonymity and stuff. But I... I I understand why they're saying, but there's a risk here that you're going to get me onto my views on the so-called avant-garde. And well, I mean, I'm that's fine with with me. Like, mm. if you want, but it, if you don't want to go there, then we we don't have to. 
in that article, as I remember it, I, I was sort of saying there's uh, different kinds of obscurity in poetry and some are inevitable and some are interestingly there and others are uh, unnecessary or counterproductive, you know. And then I quoted a line of one Melbourne poet, you know, or a stanza which seemed to be unnecessarily obscure, you know. Uh, so my view on obscurity is basically that uh, because of the uh, uh, referential kind of nature of poetry and assume the sort of cultural knowledge and you're always running the risk that you'll mention something that other people don't know about, you know. These days the internet, I worry less about that because it can be looked up, you know, it's only a matter of a few seconds and you've got the answer to that. But it's still a bit annoying that, uh, you know, if you run into too many things that are obscure. But the, the thing is, the musicality, if it is obscure like the wasteland, uh, musicality has got to be there and you think, well, I better look that up, you know. Rather than you're looking out for something, you may as well be the phone book. And you think, uh, you know, I, I can't be bothered tracing that down because there's no music to start with, you know. So being like, I mean, done can be quite obscure in parts, for instance. And yes. No, I'm just trying to look at his holy sonnets for the first time right now. And I'm, yeah. I'm just so deeply confused, but very intrigued and, and yeah. excited to figure out what well, he's talking I think, about. Uh, yeah, I don't think of a, a done poem that I know well that can't be figured out, you know, but you do need to read them at least three times. You, know, it's, you don't yes, get it the yeah. first time. Yeah, no, I still haven't got I've read I, them many I, times. I could look at that later, get, but I... Yeah. The Holy Son, how does that start? Which is that one? Um, I'm looking at um, particularly the ones that starts Batter My Heart, Three Oh, Person yeah, Batter My Heart, Three Person God. Yeah. Well, I think that poem is, it's a typical expression of a religious poet not getting enough back from God, you know, and mm. it becomes... Uh, you know, hyper-sexualised more or less at the end, you know, it's a bit disturbing, really. It is disturbing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm confused more by... More of a chase unless they ravish me. Yeah, you know. yeah, it's very like, uh, wow, why... Give what? that a miss. Couldn't possibly be talking <laughs> about God, surely. Yeah. Um, but, sorry, getting back getting back to the, the original point, um, yeah, that article had a really big impact on me because I identified myself... On you or on me? On me. On oh, yeah, sorry, you said you. I'm yeah. making it all about me, Jeff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it had a big impact on me when I read it because I identified a certain laziness in my own writing and a, a willingness to make the obscure reference and just yeah, yeah. be happy mm. that people would either look it up or not, mm. um, but just sort of... Uh, like a, a bit of a throwaway sense in my Yeah, well, there is that element in... Uh, but I, I thought there was an element of willful obscurity as well, and people actually trying to make the mm. poem more obscure than it possibly was in the first draft. <laughs> which is which is something that I used to do. You know, I was yeah. I thought that that was a, a strategy that would make my writing cooler and more... Yeah. more um, uh, like appealing to yeah. editors. I actually don't know that it's as true now. I think an obscure poem actually has less, people have less time for it yeah. than they used to. So, yeah, maybe it yeah. could be a factor. What, even among the so-called avant-garde? Well, I mean, I don't know. I think some of them are becoming less obscure than they once were. Like Michael Farrell seems to be more comprehensible these days than he once was. 
Uh, yeah, his his latest collection has got some really beautiful um, and very, like I hesitate to say straightforward because they're not straightforward. Yeah. But you know, I I can very but much like see the diction is relatively straightforward. Yeah, at least. yeah. Mm. So would you write that piece today? Is there anything? Uh, that well, I still that? have roughly the same opinions, but I mean, I did get a bit burnt, and I'm more cautious these days in saying mm. exactly what I think in. Uh, I mean, these are, everybody's a little bit sort of hypersensitive these days and because, particularly if you're sort of old, white, straight male, you know, you you feel as though whatever you say is going to be sort of ho-hum, you know, we've heard all that. You've been dominating the world since dot, you know, and uh, we don't <laughs> want to hear any more. Thanks very much. Thanks you know. very much. <laughs> and uh, the elderly... Pale women aren't in a much better situation. No, you know? uh, no. Even the young. So that, that's one thing that is sad, is that it's this idea that you you have to bring extra stuff into the poem. You know, so, I mean, some of the very best uh, poets have been gay friends, like C.P. Kafafi, you know, but he didn't make a big deal of it, you know. He did write poems very explicitly homosexual you know but he to me his best poems are really really great you know like Ithaca and Waiting for the Barbarians and ones like that and Phil Hellenic and so on you know so I think people there's a risk in making the identity sort of cover what's not there already you know that's that's, I think for Kafafi the first thing is you know the poem's got to be uh, witty and uh, profound and well, I, I don't know any Greek to speak of and, and I know that he mixed up Carla Revisor and Demotic Greek you know in a clever way which is hard to do and which he did better than anybody else has done mm-hmm. and that gave a certain both cleverness and sort of roughness you know he had the everyday but he also had the arcane mm-hmm. uh, so I suppose what I'm saying is that Identity is not enough, but for a white male to say that, it's, it seems too easy because, you know, you're in an identity that wasn't questioned for millennia, you know, and so, yeah, I don't know. The ultimate thing is how good is a poem, you know, and rather than what is the identity of the person who wrote it. You know, that's a sort of a, that's a, a minor issue to my mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not for the people who are strong identified, but that the passion of that identification can uh, sometimes not lead to good art, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think we've probably fallen on different sides of that, but I'm also really, like, happy. I'm, I think that that is, like, a, a really big conversation and like it's a good it's a good one to be having. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sorry that the conversation is being had. Yeah. The only thing I'm sorry about is that the poetry generated by a lot of it is not better than it is. And I know there's a whole issue of criteria, you know, uh, like the criteria of the ageing white male are not the criteria of the the younger alternative person or whatever, you know. So I know that poetry is ultimately subjective, but I know also that there's convergence of ideas on on quality and, and, uh, and some of these poems that I'm perhaps disapproving of now will emerge in the canon you know in 50 years time mm. 
and I will have shown to be not sufficiently aware of their virtues. You know, the, the canon is changing, and as Eliot pointed out, every time you add a poem onto the canon, it modifies all the ones already there. You know, so you you have to look at them in a slightly different way once you've added this one on the end. And, mm, mm. Uh, yeah, it has like a cascade effect. Yeah, and I, I don't like to be... I have that weed. I don't like to be unpopular, you know. It's sort of, <laughs> Nobody I does. To board. Oh, some people don't mind. I've <laughs> yeah. met a few. I, yeah, I, I sort of admire that as a, a recovering people pleaser. Um, yeah, I do. I do so say again what you admire. I admire that ability to just say, you know what, this is my opinion, and if you don't like it, then oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah that's right. That, yeah. Well, yeah uh, that, I went to a boarding school. You don't want to stand out too much at boarding school. Yeah. So. How long were you at boarding school for? Oh, I Six years or something. Wow. From the age of ten and a half to seventeen. Mm. Mm. Seven mm. years. Seven years. That's, wow, that's a long time. And uh, it wasn't a great, I mean, it's a much better school now, I believe, than it was when I was there. Mm. There were a few good teachers there. And, you know, but the people who were really popular successful, you needed to be good at sport, you know, and have a certain turn of personality, which uh, I and a minority of other people didn't didn't have. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you to read another poem probably to take us out, but I, yeah, thank you for letting me take you down that path towards the, the Southerly and Obscurity article, oh, because yeah, like, well. I know that... Um, well, you I'm, might get a little bit of flack. You know, might be touching yeah. a raw nerve there, and I... But well, I, I have don't wanted, mind yeah, up a bit. I have wanted to ask you about that for many years. Um, What's the other one? Well, I was wondering if maybe we could read this one that's printed on the back. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. In, in media, media race. race. Yeah. yeah, yeah. happy to do that. That's pretty close to my heart in a way, 148. In Medias Race. I should perhaps have warned you all, my death will be in medias race, a carload of musicians driving up from Sydney and being switched to voicemail. A poet fresh from Melbourne who fails to find my face beside the airport carousel. It may be at my keyboard, the last line of a late, late poem still looking for its shape. One likes to be reliable and death so inefficient, embarrassing as well, lying there all stiff and private, in bed or on the kitchen lino, emails piling up. It may be otherwise, I know, the documents all signed, but I'd prefer the midst of things, some little chaos left behind. Thank you, that's great. I love the, uh, the poet fresh from Melbourne. Alrighty. <laughs> Just finished interviewing Jeff Page. He told me at the start of the interview that um, my English teacher who taught me creative writing, uh, Alex, just passed away three weeks ago. So that was kind of like, it's a bit of a jolt to start the interview with. Um, apparently Jeff read at his funeral, I think. So, yeah. And now, given that Jeff lives just up the road from it, I am just driving past the high school where I did classes with Alex and yeah, where everything else 
all those other high school things happened. There it is. Beautiful Narrabunda College. Bunda was kind of a great school for somebody like me who was um, really just wanted to disappear um, during those years because it was so big. Uh, I think there were like a thousand students there and um, yeah, like nobody really noticed me for the two years I was there and that's exactly how I wanted to keep it. Yeah, that's, that's where I did English with Alex and Media with Rob. That's where I learned to love movies. And that's where I did not take poetry with Jeff Page. <laughs> and I still don't really know why. I think it was probably just because Jane was doing Homer and the Bible with Penny. And so I did that instead. Um, it's always, you know, it's funny how these like sliding doors things often come down to like no well, I can't do it because on line six I've got maths and then your whole life is just different because of that not that I mean who knows right like if I'd been introduced to poetry properly earlier would that have had any kind of effect would it have been a positive effect I don't know might have turned me off the whole thing Jeff, I was a bit like, God, am I just like digging up old drama? Um, is there a point to that? Is that useful? Is it necessary? Probably not. Almost certainly not. Maybe we just like move on. Hey, maybe the sound will be fucked and I won't be able to use any of it. That could happen. But God, look, I'm glad it's done. Jesus Christ. I mean, it's been on my mind. Like, you need to go to Canberra and interview Jeff Page. Like, that's been uh, on my list of things to do on this show for, I don't know, four or five years. Maybe the whole time I've been making it. Um, and it's done now. Did it. <laughs> 